from Share Cancer Support. This is Season 2 of the Our NBC Life Podcast, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease. I'm Victoria Goldberg, and I'm thrilled to host the new seasons of the Trailblazer series, where we shine a spotlight on people and organizations in local communities that partner with us to make our lives better. Their hard work and dedication never ceases to inspire and amaze me, and I'm excited to share their stories with you. Also, I can't wait for you to listen to a very special segment at the end of this and every future Trailblazer episode. It is written and hosted by my podcast team member, Dar Finkelstein, who calls it a dash of joy. And most of all, I am so glad you're here, since no one should face NBC alone. Welcome to another episode of our Trailblazer series. NBC is the only stage of breast cancer that kills. 40,000 people in the United States have been dying of breast cancer every year since the 90s, and the number has not changed. Recent medical advances give some of us a longer survival rate and better quality of life with new drug therapies. Still, there is no cure. The only way we will find a cure is through research and science. But the task of improving our odds through better-funded research can be placed on those of us living with NBC alone. Only with the help of allies we can hope to see the cure. Allies like Caroline Johnson, who is the founder of Kentucky-based nonprofit Twisted Pink, whose sole mission is to raise funds for NBC. Caroline is our trailblazer of the month and my guest of this podcast. Caroline was 39 years old in May 2013 when she was diagnosed with stage 3 ER-positive breast cancer. She started Twisted Pink a year later after completing chemotherapy, radiation, and several surgeries. She saw a need to do something for the men and women who were being left behind the pink ribbon. Caroline was already an experienced advocate by then. She became active in medical research advocacy after the birth of her youngest son, Michael, who was born with an extremely rare chromosome deletion in 2005. Our podcast will be released just in time for the organization's largest fundraising event, 7th Annual Gala, an evening inspired, that will be held at Churchill Downs on July 9th. I asked Caroline, about this upcoming event and Twisted Pink's simple but powerful mission to fund metastatic breast cancer research and turn awareness into cure. But first, I listened to Caroline tell her cancer story. So it'll be eight years this June fourth that I was, you know, diagnosed with um, stage three breast cancer. I'm in remission. I don't have a metastatic diagnosis. Um, Yes. So I see my oncologist every six months and I keep asking him, what are you all checking for? You take my blood, da, da, da. He says, well, we really don't look for anything unless you have symptoms. Like, okay, well, that doesn't make sense to me, but okay. (laughs) Take your word for it. It really doesn't. They, They do the markers. Yeah. And that's it. And you had what? You had ER positive, HER2 negative? 
Yes, ER positive, um, PR negative, HER2 negative, which is scary because I think the, scary. the evidence shows that recurrence is higher in ER positive. Yeah, so, and it's higher after five years too. Yeah, yeah. I'm triple positive, so I'd asked my doctor about a year before my recurrence. I had about 10 years between yeah. my early stage and my metastatic recurrence. And I asked him if I was out of the woods, and he said no, and he was right. But I think in your case, though, given that you had uh, early advanced cancer, the fact that you have so many years, it's a good sign. Yeah. You had a lot of cancer in you, and uh, it did not come back in the first seven years. So I yeah. think that could be, uh, again, this is my hypothesis, but I think <laughs> there's yeah. a good reason to hope. That. There's always hope, right? Like always hope. I did a clinical trial while I was doing my chemo and radiation, and it was looking at lowering the recurrence rates for patients in my category, which were, I guess, premenopausal women that had a stage three, two or stage two or three diagnosis with lymph node involvement, and they were looking at everolimus to prevent metastases. So jury's still out on that. I participated in the trial for a year, and I guess it's still ongoing. So, they, not... so they gave you a finitor as an, adjuvant, as an adjuvant treatment? Yeah, with chemo and radiation. And they, they combined it with standard of care, and it was a, a double-blind placebo study, but they knew I was on the drug because my blood count dropped significantly, and they even had to decrease the medication dosage. So I knew I was getting the medication. It's, yeah, which <laughs> double blind placebo, but everybody yeah, but, knew. But they knew because of the side effects. Yeah, so. no, I know, I know. I always wonder. And I ended that. up getting, I ended up getting an infection. Um, my my plastic surgeon thinks it was because of the medication, the clinical trial drug. He said it could have been the radiation, but it's most likely, you know, the fact that I had the drug and the radiation at the same time. My white blood count was low, so risk of infection is higher. So yeah, I went through all kinds of stuff with that, but you know, I'm better. I'm, I'm fine now. Wonderful. So what kind of reconstruction did you have? I had originally, when I was first diagnosed, they recommended a lumpectomy. Mm. So I had the lumpectomy and the margins weren't clear. Mm -hmm. I had a very fast growing um, tumor in my left breast mm. and I found the lump I had a baseline mammogram at 37 years old with no family history. My OB just recommended I have a baseline at 37. So I did that. And then when I was 39, found the lump yeah. and my doctor sent me in right away for a diagnostic mammogram. They did a biopsy the same day. And that was Memorial Day weekend of 2013. And then was diagnosed on June 4th. I got the call from the um, radiologist that read the report and took the biopsy. He happened to be a friend of mine and lives in our neighborhood and our kids went to school together. So he called me to let me know mm -hmm. and had a lumpectomy, but the margin wasn't clear. So I went ahead a week later and had a mastectomy on the left breast only. Mm -hmm. And then I went straight into chemo in July of that year finished radiation on Valentine's Day of 2014. You know, it's funny. I was diagnosed on that day. With really? My, with my recurrence. On Valentine's Day? That day. Oh. That, exactly that day. Oh, wow. Valentine's 2014. 14. Oh, wow. 
I was diagnosed with breast cancer twice on Valentine's Day. It, that's awful. <laughs> I know. Well, it's, uh, it tells you how much I care about Valentine's Day. So I, yeah, really. Yeah. It's not a holiday you want anymore, right? No, no. But it's funny. You and I had the same day. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I only remember it because it was Valentine's Yeah, Day, me too. You know? That's the and only I, reason I remember it. And it was uh, Valentine's 2014. Yeah. Wow. I finished that. And then I found it to be very hard to be done with treatment because yeah. I felt safe. I know. So I felt like they were doing something. And then I'm yep, put back Linda. out into the real world without yeah. treatment happening. And then you have to kind of go live your life. So I did a lot of uh, mental health therapy. And I'm still taking a Remedex every day. Yeah. And I'll be on that for 10 years. And I keep asking my doctor, I'm like, what's the magic number with 10 years? Why 10 years? It used to be five. Now it's 10. You know, if, if you're tolerating the drug, why not be on it forever? And he just doesn't have a good answer for me. It's just because of the studies, I guess. I don't know. But you come off of it. I'm going to have to go back to therapy when I come off the drug because it'll be even more fearful for me. But, but the curve does go down quite a lot. So yeah. after 10 years, uh, it, it flattens quite a bit. Yeah. There are a few here and there who recur up to 10 years, but I think the majority yeah. still will be in the first 10 years. Right. So you didn't have the reconstruction then or you never had? The oh, I, did, I had a tissue expander placed at the same yeah. time as my mastectomy. Yeah. And then that's when I got the infection a year later after I had finished the radiation. And it was May of 2015. Mm-hmm. And I spent a week in the hospital. They removed my tissue expander. I was flat for about oh. eight months. I, I had a tram flat procedure after okay. that. Luckily, I had had enough belly fat from my pregnancies. I've had children and they were able to use that area to uh, reconstruct. But honestly, by that point, I was just done with it all. I just wanted to be. I I tell you, though, I had the same thing. Well, I didn't have Tremplant. I I had had an implant. And uh, now, 17 years later, I look so lopsided. It's like uh, as if I never had a reconstruction. I think that's the hard part is if you, did you just have one side? Yeah, I had only a single mastectomy. Yeah, that's the same with me. So it's difficult because of weight gain and loss. It's never going to be. And gravity. And in your case, probably it's a little better because when they do tram flap, it's a little more um, realistic looking, right? And uh, tissue. It's my own, it's my own body. So that, that was a little bit better. I wish I would have done that from the beginning, but. I have a son with special needs, so I was worried about lifting. And no, um, no. how is he doing? He's doing well. Although COVID has obviously affected everybody, but it's really affected him because he's not in school. He lost his routine. He's regressed a little bit because of all of that. But we have a caregiver that comes in every day and helps us with him, so that's nice. How old is he now? But he's fifteen. Oh wow, fifteen. He was born with a rare um, genetic deletion on his fifth chromosome. And he also has epilepsy and he's nonverbal and he'll be with us forever mm-hmm. until we're, we're gone. And hopefully my daughters will take over. God bless them. Know. You know? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a lot on you. It's a lot. It is a lot. So, so how come, this is a really stupid question, but I was wondering about it. And I'm so grateful for what you do for the metastatic community. But why did you decide uh, to uh, 
to do your fundraising for breast cancer and not autism or special needs? Special, well, you know, that's a good question. I felt like, first of all, there's a lot of groups already out there for autism. There's Autism Speaks. And, and I felt like we had a good support system locally with groups that are doing things for epilepsy and, and all different kinds of things that touch him. So I didn't want to obviously recreate the wheel there. And the only group that I could find that was available for metastatic patients was Metaviber at the time. And they were fairly new back when I started Twisted Pink. Obviously they're huge now, international organization, but I couldn't find anything else. And I wanted to do something that would impact metastatic patients in Kentucky because Kentucky has one of the highest states of cancer incidents in the country. I didn't know that. Yes. And breast cancer is the second leading cause of death in Kentucky of cancer. Lung cancer is the first, and it might be like that nationally, but I wanted to do more locally and there weren't enough people standing up in Kentucky to advocate for metastatic disease. And I had met several patients here locally, right at the time that I was diagnosed with my breast cancer, I met a young lady named Laura McGregor, who is a metastatic patient, and she has an organization called Hope Scarves. Hope Scarves, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and right at the time I was diagnosed and received a scarf from her organization, she was diagnosed with metastatic breast mm-hmm. cancer with a recurrence. When I was going through my treatment, I came across a video called Pink Ribbons, Inc. You may have, you may have seen it. It's about 10 or 12 years old, and there was I, a lot I in that. I have one actually, but it's, uh, it's good to know. Yeah, Yeah, Pink Ribbons, Inc. It, you look it up. It's on YouTube. You can I watch will. it for free. But there's a lot of information in that video that I became just outraged about because of the amount of funding that's going to early detection and, and prevention of breast cancer, but not enough going to metastatic breast cancer. And I asked my oncologist what my chances of recurrence were. Mm -hmm. And when he said 20 to 30% after my treatment, that's when I was like, wow, that's crazy. The shock on people's faces in this video, when they're questioned about these things and they think that when they donate money to some of the other national breast cancer organizations, they think their money's going to a cure, right? But it's really not. There's a lot of wasted money. So that's the why. And I felt like with Michael, I do a lot of work with other organizations with my son and I do advocate for him quite a bit. We're in the middle of uh, legal mediation with his school to try to get services back for him that are required by federal law, but they're not doing it because of COVID. Yeah, I do it all. And then I have to take breaks. I have to step back every now and then because I have to keep myself healthy, you know? It's too much. And you don't find that being so involved in cancer now is difficult for you. You find that you can separate your own mental health from all this cancer. It's not difficult for me if I'm doing something it helps me feel like I'm in control. I'm, I'm going out and I'm doing something to mm-hmm. prevent this from happening to me again. That's how I feel. That's why I do it personally. Yeah. But what's hard for me is when I meet women and I become friends with these women and then I have to say goodbye to them. Yeah. Like I am devastated over my friend, Jennifer in Indianapolis. I, 
And then I, and that's when the anger and the guilt comes in. I'm like, what are we doing? Can we do more? What can we do? Mm -hmm. I want to have those conversations though, because I owe it to her. I owe it to everyone like her as a breast cancer survivor. I wish I could get all of the survivors out there that don't think about, they put breast cancer on the back burner. They've gone through it and they're waving their pink flags and they're like celebrating. I wish I could get all of them to come to the table and say, we can do more for everyone. I was like that. I was one of those. Got my cancer diagnosis. Had no idea that I still had 30% chance of recurrence. Yeah, And it doesn't matter how advanced you are, right? They give you statistics based on your stage, but it's yeah. irrelevant. And uh, yeah, and I moved on with my life. It was one of those uh, bumps on the road and I just moved on. Yeah. And what a surprise I got 10 years later. <laughs> right. How did you know you had metastatic disease? I was, I was actually highly symptomatic, but I paid no attention to it. It's the same thing. They told me nothing we can do. We do cancer markers every six months. Some doctors do it. Some doctors don't do it. And that's about it. I started having a lot of GI problems and nausea. And I didn't attribute it to anything but stress at work because I really was having horrendous year at work, really bad. So I thought that was, you know, for the course but in fact it was my liver and when I was finally uh, diagnosed I had the meds all over my liver. Mm -hmm. I'm amazed that there is not more they do for diagnostic tools. And I have HER2 positive disease and 50% of uh, my cancer goes to the brain. Yeah. And uh, you can't convince your doctors to give you a diagnostic brain MRI. So they're waiting for symptoms, and it's proven now that the bigger the lesions are, the harder it is to treat. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me that that's the case, because, and I guess they do that because there's nothing they can give you that's preventative from it going to the brain, maybe? I don't know. Now they do, actually. Now they they do. do. You know, for her, too, they have this drug to cotton it, and I think they're running trials to see if it will prevent. But even diagnosing it early Mm-hmm. makes a difference, right? If you catch it early enough and you can do radiation on the lesion, it's better than doing a craniotomy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, have you had a chance to listen to the podcast? Yes. This year we have changed uh, quite a lot about the podcast. So the trailblazer in the uh, last season was part of I Just Got a Share episode. We we abandoned that, but we were still committed and we are committed very much to our trailblazer. And so luckily for me, now we get the whole episode to highlight somebody like you, you specifically, and that's a lot better. I think that's the most important thing we can do as a service to our community to shine, shine the spotlight on what you do. And it's amazing. So um, I'm so honored that you even reached out. Thank you so much. Oh, no, no. I have thought about you for quite a while. I've been following what you're doing and I'm very impressed. It's tough. I've been doing a lot of patient advocacy in the last five years, but there's one thing that I find very difficult to do is policy and fundraising. Mm -hmm. So I admire people who can do it. And it's, it's really important because you're actually moving the needle. Like, There are times, and I do a lot, there are days when I say to myself, what is this for? What's the point of this? 
Oh, I totally understand that because I, there are days where I feel like I need to quit what I'm doing because this is not working. Right. Yeah. But then I, but then I get a call from my friend, Jen up in Indianapolis that says every single dollar that you put to research absolutely is hope for me. Absolutely. Right? Every yeah. single dollar. What you're doing is huge. Yeah. What I'm doing, people tell me is important, but, but what, it you're, is important. what yeah. you're doing is huge. And um, so how do you pick the, the labs that you fund? So we're in the process of looking at that right now. In the beginning, we wanted to give local. We gave um, our first $100,000 to UofL Brown Cancer Center, mm -hmm. and we funded a researcher named Dr. Ioannis Imbert Fernandez, and she was doing research on estrogen-positive breast cancer and how estradiol helps the cancer grow and metastasize. And so we seed funded her project, and two or three years later, she was able to get a $2 million grant from the NIH. So that's kind of what we focus on. We try to focus on seed funding for researchers to develop their hypothesis to go to larger institutions like the DOD and the NIH mm -hmm. to, get, to get more funding. Yeah. Um, so that's where we are right now. But if we can raise more money, then we can give more money to other institutions. We did fund Dr. Andrew Ewald last year. We love the work he's doing. Yeah. And so we try to develop relationships with research institutions and people that we know are doing great work and they've been vetted. But we don't have a peer review process. We feel like that is, although it's a good process to have, we feel like it really complicates things and sometimes puts a barrier up against researchers that have really good ideas that could not get the funding. So we have a task force that has researchers and clinicians, oncologists and patients that help us determine where we're going to spend our money every year. And we try to make it as simple as possible. We have a board of directors for the organization, and then we also have a research task force. The research task force will look at all of our available funds, and they'll look at the researchers that we have funded in the past and what proposals we have on the table, and they will make a recommendation on who we're going to fund on an annual basis. And then we'll take it to our board, and our board approves it. And so... Right now, you 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 want to stay as is, or you'll have more we're, we're, uh, well, we're serious long-term plans. We did long-range planning last year, and so we have a three-year goal of growing regionally. We want to be able to host events and reach out into other areas like Indianapolis, Nashville, Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, Lexington. Obviously, we have a great presence in Kentucky in general already, but we want to grow a little bit and be able to raise more funding because really it's the dollars that are helping to seed that money. And I think that Twisted Pink will probably stay focused on seed funding for basic research that will further advance metastatic disease because that's kind of where we've been niched already and it's been working. So why change something that's not broken. Oh, absolutely. And so how do you actually uh, raise funds? We have events. We have an annual gala every year. We used to have it in February, but because of COVID, we did not this year. So we've moved it to July and it's going to be a hybrid event. 
is July the 9th at Churchill Downs. And then people can also participate online. And we do a lot of online fundraising through Facebook. We do local events here. We participate in our community foundation, Give for Good Day every September. And then we've grown with patient advocacy. We A lot of the patients that are involved in our organization here locally want to do their own fundraising. We have a young lady in her 50s. Her name's Paula Miller, and she does a Beat It Music Festival every year for us. And she has her two positive um, metastatic breast cancer also to her liver. Her husband's a musician, and she hosts a community event. It's free, open to the public, but we take donations at her event. And she's raised probably $20,000 with her event. So yeah, it's great. So we do things like that. And, you know, it's always just relationship building and outreach. What is your relationship with MetaViver, if any? I feel like it's kind of been strained, to be honest. I've reached out to them several times in the beginning to see how we could collaborate. And I've gotten a little bit of pushback, but I don't know if it's just because they want to do their own thing and don't see the need to collaborate, but I'll, I'll keep trying. I know Laura has partnered with MetaViber and funded some research grants with them. So it's something that I can look into again. And, and I certainly understand the need for wanting to keep what you've got going and they don't want to complicate things by involving other organizations. I get that. But I also think that if we can all work together better, right? Like just, let's just all pull of our, pull our funds together and let's find a project to fund together. We can do that. Right. And that's what she and I and Laura did mm-hmm. uh, back in 2015 and, yeah. and we were successful at it. It was great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree with you. I, I still don't get the siloed approach. This yeah. is something that's completely beyond me. The helpline that we have at SHARE, LBBC has a helpline. Some other organizations have lines. Why do we need 25,000 helplines? Why can't we just have one helpline and uh, yeah. help people go, who will know where to go? So yeah, it's complicated and I'm very hopeful that it will change. Tell me how people can find you if they want to help out or donate or uh, become part of Twisted Think. They can find us at twistedpink.org on our website, and all of our information is there. We have three really great programs. Jennifer Alderman, who has become a dear friend of mine, we have started a scholarship fund in her friend's honor. It's called the Robert L. DeLaby Scholarship Fund. And Rob was a very good friend of Jennifer's who died tragically this past December, And in his honor, because he was such a great contributor to Twisted Pink in Jennifer's name, we developed this scholarship fund and it will be given annually to a metastatic breast cancer patient to attend the ASCO conference as a patient advocate. And we will fund up to $2,500 for the person to attend the ASCO event that will cover airfare and lodging and any kind of registration fee for the conference. Why did you decide on ASCO and not San Antonio? Because that is what Jennifer suggested. And I I think that we went with what we thought Rob would like. Okay, yeah. But we could look into San Antonio because that's a great conference. 
It is a great conference. It's a breast cancer conference. And geographically, it's a much easier conference to navigate because it's all in one place. And and there are lots and lots of patient advocates who come to San Antonio. So it's a really great place to be. I go there. It's an amazing place. Yes. So I also wanted to ask you, how did you come up with the name? I always like to know. I like the name. So Twisted Pink came up, I came up with that name because I wanted to twist the idea of the pink ribbon from a celebration of um, survivorship to something that was more meaningful to the metastatic community. And we wanted to twist the message of we have a cure to breast cancer to we don't yet have a cure to breast cancer. And, and we felt like the standard pink messaging was not very truthful. And so that's how we came up with Twisted Pink. And the flower in our logo symbolizes a new way to educate about breast cancer survivorship and recurrence. And I'm very adamant about being truthful, but not in instilling fear into people. I want people to understand that if you're diagnosed with breast cancer, it's not a death sentence, but we still don't have a cure and we have a long way to go to get there. Yeah, that's very, very good. And what about your own personal wishes? Where do you see yourself in a few years from now? I am very, very hopeful that I will still be cancer-free. And where do I see myself? I should be an empty nester, but I will never be an empty nester because of my son. My two girls will be off at college. I see myself in a whole different area of my life. So it's going to be interesting to see where I will be in three years. But hopefully, I'll be able to travel a little bit more. And hopefully, we'll see some advances in the work that we're doing today in three years. And we will have so much more to offer to patients. And yeah. Yeah. So let me, I, I always ask this question at the interview. I'm sure I've forgotten to ask something. So what would have you like me to ask that I hadn't? Hmm. Is there anything that I forgot to ask you? I don't know. Okay, good. So I'm a good interviewer. That you is are. so good. All right. I think this is an amazing uh, thing you're doing. And I think it needs to be highlighted more. I think people need to hear about this. And I know a lot of people already know about you. It's not like you're an unknown quantity, but the more people that get to know you and what you do, the more traction we're all going to get. And maybe we'll get there to the cure a little sooner. Yes. Because some of the stuff that you are funding is truly important. Yes, and, it is. It's really yeah. important. And that's like the basic biology, the basic science. I think that's where the breakthrough is. Well, the, the thing about that is, is if that's not funded, we won't make advances because yeah. they need that. They need to prove to exactly. larger funders that their hypothesis is valid, right? And they can't get the funding to do yeah. that without... And this is, this is the first time, actually, to be quite honest with you, this is the first time I heard a really valid explanation of why smaller funds are important. Mm-hmm. Because you think about it, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who would say, 
what's a million dollars in cancer research? It's nothing. The big pharma is spending millions and billions. I'm glad you told me that because now I understand and that makes a lot of sense. You're right. I mean, this whole premise of how much money goes for NBC research is also questionable, right? Because there are a lot of drugs that are being developed uh, for early stage cancer, really start with metastatic breast cancer. But the stuff that you do is, is really, really specifically to move the metastatic research. Right. And, and it is crucial. And I'm so thrilled to hear what you're doing. And I hope more people hear about you because it's needed. It's absolutely needed. You're right. This initial seed money, that makes a big difference. I read this book on Herceptin. There are a number of books written on Herceptin. And uh, one of the things that um, National Breast, Breast Cancer Coalition did and Department of Defense. They gave a little seed money to, uh, to the researchers to move the project when it was languishing, really, at Genentech. Yeah. So, so thank you so much for what you do. It's, uh, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, Oh, my God. Shout yes. to others. I am, I am, I'm so glad I was able to talk to you, and I'm really excited to get this podcast out. Yeah. Thank you. And I love your glasses. <laughs> Bye-bye. And as promised, here is our friend Dar bringing us a dash of joy. Hi, Dar here with a dash of joy. Today, we're going to talk about humor. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Oops, I meant to say, which comes first, joy or humor? Now, you might think that you must have joy before you can have humor in your life, but actually, the opposite is true. Humor cultivates joy. If you're having trouble finding joy, it might be because you are just taking life way too seriously you might need to start to inject humor into your life. Bringing humor into a troubled situation can create moments of joy. Humor puts things into perspective. Now, humor comes naturally to me because my husband and I are clowns. I'm jelly and he's peanut butter. I have brought humor to the rescue many times since I was diagnosed with MBC, and I'd like to share a bit of how humor has helped me find joy in my life. One role humor plays is to diffuse stress and anxiety. But how do you do that if you don't even think you're funny? Well, one of the best ways to bring humor into a situation is to learn how to laugh at yourself. Not long after my MBC diagnosis, I had lunch with my friend Carol. It was a bit of a somber affair as I was telling her for the first time about the recurrence of my cancer. Toward the end of the lunch, as we were saying our goodbyes, she quietly said to me, take care of yourself. I know you're very stressed because you've been calling me Joan all during lunch. Wow, I was mortified and just blurted out, well, I guess that's going to have to be your new name. We chuckled over this, and an awkward moment became a new joke between us. To this day, I still laughingly call her Joan every once in a while. 
I didn't get all defensive or plead, oh, I'm so, so sorry, over and over. Instead, a serious atmosphere became much lighter, and we have a new bond between us. Laughing at yourself breaks the bonds of perfection and relaxes you and the others around you. Another role humor plays is to cut a tension-filled atmosphere. When people are at odds with each other, there are usually very few smiles to be found. But humor can break down the barriers between people. When humor is infused into a situation, you can immediately see a change in body language. Someone may be sitting rigidly in a chair with tensed shoulders and clasped hands, but all of that changes as you laugh. You sit back, your body relaxes, and your shoulders move along with the laughter. Humor says, come with me. We can laugh at the situation together. A great example of this is a story I heard once about two friends who had drifted apart over a silly disagreement. They were thrown together unexpectedly and the old argument started anew. Then one of the men said, I know what we can do. Let's thumb wrestle over this. And the best two out of three wins the argument. Suddenly they began laughing and realized that what they were arguing over really wasn't that important they were able to bring joy back into their friendship. One of the most interesting roles humor plays is to bring levity to serious situations. Humor becomes the saving grace in times of grief or loss. I learned this lesson as a young adult. We were at my aunt's funeral and several of his cousins were sitting quietly in a corner. The next thing you know, we were telling stories and sharing memories about our aunt. As the storytelling continued and we became quite boisterous with lots of laughing, we noticed that our parents were all looking at us with the evil eye. We figured we were going to be busted for being too loud. But we were surprised. Instead, they joined us and a sad situation became one filled with joy as we all shared our special memories of our aunt. Another role humor plays in finding your joy comes from a proverb we've all heard. Laughter is the best medicine. You can imagine as a clown, this is the most powerful aspect of humor for me personally. When I first began a metastatic breast cancer support group in my community shortly after my own diagnosis, I figured it would be a very somber crowd. And often we do talk about sad and serious topics but our meetings are always peppered with laughter, often things that only those of us who are walking down this path would find funny. There's a bond between us, a shared humanity, that humor helps to strengthen and bring us joy. Now, there are also times when I'm not feeling well or I'm struggling with fatigue and I lose track of my joy. I'm sure this has happened to all of you. Often, humor comes to my rescue. Immersing myself in funny videos online, humorous movies, or funny TV shows will start me laughing out loud, and I'm suddenly in a joy-filled atmosphere. So the next time you're struggling to find your joy, keep it simple and just laugh. 
I hope you will continue to join me on this joyful adventure on the RMBC Life Trailblazer episodes the last Friday of each month. Until we chat again, go find a bit of joy today. Now, which came first, the chicken or the egg? podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and our truly amazing team of Bob DeVito, Dar Finkelstein, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, Ellen Landsberger, Sheila McGlone, Riley Starr, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, the Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. Our senior intern is Sarah Mann, along with interns Angelica Alberstadt, Emily Lewis, Samantha Silverstein, and Amy Tedeschi. We have benefited from expert social media consulting from Jake Amarelli and sound design and original music compositions from Jim Cremens. You can find more episodes of RMBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate and review us and look for a new episode every second Monday. Check out our blog, full episode notes on our website at rmbclife.org. We would love to hear from you.